Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I caught up with Ross McNaughton, who is a CISO in the UAE. Ross painted a very vivid picture on the landscape of the Middle East and how they were conducting their security teams in that region. I was interested to learn more about the banking and finance sector, how it operates in Bahrain, and how other parts of the world can understand their approach and incorporate some of his knowledge and implement it into their own businesses. If you're wanting to learn more about Ross's experience and the Middle East, then please keep listening. Ross, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you and to give a lot of our listeners a bit of perspective about what you guys do over there. But before we get jumping into it, I'd like to start off our podcast with talking about you and your career. Where did you start to where you are now? In the midst of time, I actually was uh, started off as a pen tester before they were even known as pen testers. Um, that was uh, uh, way back in the, the 90s. And then I um, came through effectively as part of a technical security consultancy and became involved with lots of different clients and uh, actually that that segued me into the Middle East uh, as uh, our consultancy uh, ended up with lots and lots of clients in the Middle East and spent more and more time in the Middle East um, because there was a huge demand in the early 2000s out in the Middle East. As part of that, I then moved to the Middle East. Uh, One of our clients uh, said to me, "Uh, this is all wonderful, this uh, three-inch thick document you've given us uh, Mm -hmm. with 800, 900 things that we need to fix. Um, Come and put your money where the mouth is and uh, implement it for us. So Mm -hmm. uh, I uh, joined one of my clients and spent the next uh, 10 years working through that organization, taking them from, uh, I would say, a very traditional security approach to being one of the leaders in uh, cyber and information security in the Middle East in terms of banks. As part of that, ended up doing lots of different roles um, because with lots of different areas to fix, I was kind of used as uh, Mr. Fixer, so I'd get mm-hmm. parachuted into an area, and uh, that then became the focus point for a few years. We ran a multi-engine SOC, uh, we had compliance teams, we had to build automated compliance program, we uh, built a governance program, then we had to do an internal red team program, so mm-hmm. literally all sorts of different areas across the organization. And as part of that, we then moved the organization to the point where it was highly mature and then handed it off uh, when I went to join a very innovative uh, financial startup in the Middle East as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we worked on that for many years, and that was actually one of the very first digital finance companies uh, in Saudi Arabia. And the security around that obviously was very key. We uh, built that and then uh, I moved into Bahrain uh, to join uh, banks here again. I'm not the CISO you bring to run the bank, I'm the CISO you bring to change the bank. When I uh, came out to Bahrain again, it was a massive challenge. When I came to Bahrain, the banks here have had lighter regulation compared to other sectors in the Middle East. And so um, there was a lot of work to be done to bring these banks up to modern cybersecurity requirements. We had a very good journey at one bank and then I've just joined uh, another bank where we're doing the same there. Whoa, okay. So you've definitely got quite an extensive history in the banking sector. 
I want to jump in on this because I think it's something that a lot of people, I've worked in a bank myself, so I'm definitely keen from a personal perspective, but also from our listeners. And as we are a global podcast, I'd like to dive in more to understand what the landscape looks like over in Bahrain for some of our listeners who are perhaps not familiar and they're excited to learn more about this part of the world Bahrain is a, a banking hub in uh, the GCC. It's uh, always been where the banks would come because, again, there's uh, regulatory advantages to being here. Um, so, there, so you tend to have lots and lots of international banks. I think there's uh, something like 50 banks in Bahrain. Uh, oh. It's also one of the fintech hubs in uh, the GCC and they're actively encouraging and funding fintechs to come to Bahrain. Um, oh, being a leader okay. in the in the in the region on um, trying to be the most innovative financial services hub. AWS just launched a new region here as well which was uh, very uh, good for the region because previously the region has very tight uh, regulations around data residency so again that helped banks um, look at cloud options that maybe weren't open to them before because there weren't clouds hosted in the middle east uh, microsoft just opened a data center in the uae as well so this is allowing the banking sector to start looking at cloud, whereas uh, previously the banking sector and GCC weren't able to look at it because of the security requirements and some of the regulations, uh, mainly around legal disclosure. Yeah, so um, from a security standpoint, Bahrain tends to have headquarters of lots of international banks regionally. So they either drive their security program for, from here or from the UAE. And uh, as such, you get a, a wide diversity of um, implementation. Some organizations are still in early in their journey. Um, other organizations, like the one I'm in just now, are very mature in their security journey. But So it, it really depends on where the organization has been. The risk tolerance out here is very low for security risk. Uh, reputation in the Middle East generally uh, for an organization is uh, paramount. So. Risk tolerance is, I would say, conservative, mm -hmm. mainly on the innovation side because of the security concerns. And that, that drove, again, uh, back when I was in Saudi Arabia before, the bank's uh, attitude towards security. They were very uh, keen to have as much control as possible. Still following, and this even in mid-2000s was a very traditional approach, as in comprehensive control-based approach. Um, and they would just uh, invest into the point that the environment was highly secure, but mm -hmm. that then stifled innovation. So again, the looking at more agile risk management practices for security has become more and more of a need regionally because that approach, all the banks are starting to get into digital transformation. They're mm -hmm. wanting to accelerate their customer offerings. And the security guys are all saying, no, we can't do this. So. Um, Again, this is one of the uh, the big challenges is the banks uh, are used to having control-based approaches and to manage the risk on an ongoing basis throughout the process. And mm -hmm. um, there, it's very, um, I would even say scary for some banks uh, to hear that because they're used to being able to have this level of control. But again, the customers are going where, who provides the most innovative offering? And the customers nowadays can move very quickly. 
So banks are uh, competing with each other very heavily to maintain their market share. So do you think they're struggling to find that balance between innovation and the level of security around that? Are they trying to find that balance that makes sense so they aren't losing customers? Yes, um, it, it's a it's a big, big challenge and uh, it's trying to drive in that uh, happy medium where they can do things quickly but safely is um, very is it's it's the constant stressor um the the way i've seen that it's done best is to actually run internal sandboxes within the Mm -hmm. organization so you can say okay you can have traditional approach over here but then take that over there we can actually start to look at more innovative ways of doing things we can break out from the traditional security models over there and and again this has been helped by the regional introduction of cloud and also some of the the regulations being um, adjusted to cater for cloud. There's a lot of regulations previously in the GCC that said no cloud, pure and simple. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that Whoa. then that then uh, gave a big issue for people who wanted to try and drive that kind of sandboxing in place. It was just mainly around again data residency. They wanted to have the data in the region rather than being subject to legal jurisdictions of other countries. Um, of course, of course, of so, course. Yeah, a big concern. And so for that, the region has uh, been very traditionally anti-cloud. And if you look at the global cloud index, they're now racing towards the top because you've got Google investing in Saudi Arabia, Microsoft already deployed in in the UAE, and AWS just launched in Bahrain. Mm -hmm. So now that's driving the requirement for cloud security in the Middle East. And that's, again, been an area that hasn't really had that much skill in the Middle East. Um, I took a few months off last year and spent the whole time just doing cloud and cloud security because there were so many requirements and the region was uh, quite far behind in terms of using the advanced features of cloud. There's some really Mm -hmm. good leaders there in more in fintechs. Uh, side of things, but the banks themselves, uh, because of the regulation, are only now starting to uh, invest heavily in cloud. So do you think, I know you mentioned just before, uh, regulations were no, no cloud, and they're adjusting that. Do yes. you think now that they've sort of lowered that regulation that banks will be moving to the cloud? Well, the regulations weren't lowered. There were more, they built in requirements that allowed cloud, and okay. they, they set a very strict requirements in terms of what you could, uh, if you want to do cloud, you have to do this, you have Got to you. do that, you have to do the next thing. Okay. Um, and, you know, that that's good because, again, it provides guidance to the banks uh, on what was deemed acceptable. And, you know, you can do cloud and keep your data residency in place. It mm-hmm. may seem a bit over the top in terms of the amount of encryption requirements and key management requirements, but it allows the banks to go to cloud. And yes, where there is no jurisdictional impedance, uh, banks are now starting to actively investigate what they can put in the cloud and leverage some of the cost benefits and also security benefits. A lot of uh, people don't actually realize that cloud itself can be more secure than on-premises. Can you dig in a bit more about that? Because you, as you would know, there's people talking about hybrid, on-prem, public cloud, private cloud. Can you explain a little bit more about some of the research that you did do and you took some time off last year about why you believe it is a more secure option? Sure. Um, with the various options of cloud, um, you know, 
cloud itself, um, you see all these scare stories in the press of cloud mm-hmm. reach here, cloud reach there. Exactly. Cloud is cloud uh, again is just if people remember, it's just someone else's computer. I know it's a it's a, it's a widely quoted phrase, but it is true. It's someone else's computer. If you secure it to the level that you would normally secure your own data centers, your own infrastructure, and you put in the same compliance controls and the same security controls that you would put in place, it's actually more secure because the cloud provider is taking care of a lot of the underlying security issues that your internal teams would normally have to deal with. You no longer Mm -hmm. have to worry about the infrastructure security side of things from uh, we have vulnerabilities in our firewalls, we have vulnerabilities in our IPSs, we have vulnerabilities in our machine images and these sorts of things. Because the vendors actually provide um, that infrastructure generally to the public, so they are uh, taking care of that. The you know, the organization still has a full responsibility to make sure that those things are configured correctly. And, you know, misconfiguration is actually the biggest issue in cloud nowadays because people, because it's very easy to spin up new systems in the cloud and bring things online very quickly, people forget the traditional processes of change management, release management, Mm -hmm. uh, governance, compliance over the process, testing, quality assurance and deploy things quickly and that's when misconfiguration comes in that would be the same case if it was on premises it's just mm-hmm. on premises the process would take longer so these checks and balances would be in place on the cloud you can do that in a matter of five minutes therefore a lot of the checks and balances don't happen but if you do the same checks and balances that you would do on premises on the cloud you actually end up with an overall more secure more available infrastructure you know the cloud security itself is the same concepts quite often they have different names the cloud providers all love to change the names of things mm-hmm. that security professionals all know for the last 20 years. Nothing has actually changed in terms of the security concepts, the security requirements. It's configuration management, release management, patch management, vulnerability management. It's still all the same. They just change the terminology. So do you think it's more of a behavioral thing that we're now doing things slightly different to how we traditionally were? Yes, and adjusting the internal thinking to be able to apply mm-hmm. the same measures of control that were there previously is what's needed. You're 100%. I really do agree with that point. And it's something that I have spoken to a number of cybersecurity practitioners around the world about the change in the behavior that needs to be engendered within the culture and the organization. One thing I'd like to ask you about is where do you believe the Middle East sits in regards to other parts of the world in terms of security posture? In terms of the security posture, they're coming from the risk adverse approach. The Middle East generally has been adopting more traditional practices. So they went big in for control based approach, comprehensive controls. So organization, you know, and their different sectors have different maturities because of the regulations. There's a lot of unregulated sectors, which meant that you know, mm-hmm. they, they have been lagging very far behind in terms of cybersecurity postures. The banking sectors, because there was that risk adverse approach in there and because it is the most targeted region in the world, um, has been actually very keen to maintain a very good posture. But 
in terms of the rest of the world, the, the areas that are um, lagging in the Middle East are generally around more advanced technologies, adoption rates, all of that, and generally actually bringing uh, a compliance program comprehensively across the organization. I know it's a more boring side of security. Um, yeah, the banks here have lots of money to invest in the latest technologies and things, but things such as comprehensive compliance reviews, mature um, organizational structures, these sorts of things are actually where the organizations are still working on. And, you know, the, these are improvement areas because previously they were able to buy the technology, deploy the technology, but maybe not actually get it implemented to the extent that it was actually being used comprehensively across the organization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that then brings a lot of change within the organization when you have uh, large staff turnovers. As well, the Middle East tends to be um, expat-based uh, resourcing. So you tend to have, over time, lots of resource turnover in different organizations. And that also brings disruption because you have four to five-year cycles of staff coming in and out. And then an approach changes. Uh, people forget what was put in place before. The documentation of the processes might not have been there for the handover. So again, these things are cyclical within the organization. You will see periods where the organization has high amounts of control and then it becomes a bit more relaxed and then it comes back to being more high control in place. But again, going back to the point I made earlier about the, the fact that it is the most attacked region in the world, partly political based and partly financial based because the Middle East has banks that have huge amounts of investment and it is seen as a globally by the attackers as being a, I would say, weaker target. So again, a more risk adverse approach also was bringing in attackers because they weren't actually looking at advanced controls and they were very flexible in terms of doing business. So, And when you mentioned before about the high staff turnover, how are companies managing that process to ensure that things run a business as usual and there's not a lot of disruptions? How, how do you see that sort of process improving as well? And again, different countries handle it differently. Um, okay. I've seen in, in Saudi Arabia, you tend to have people stay longer within organizations, whereas in the rest of the GCC, you tend to have a much higher turnover of staff. The, the organizational's internal process maturity is really where that's at. If they have robust internal processes for handling that and good governance, um, you know, the processes being put in place by the security governance team, if they've actually been driven into the organization should survive the transitioning of staff. Mm -hmm. um, the areas that are, are generally uh, the hardest to maintain or, you know, it's the same problems across the whole industry, uh, mm -hmm. like SOC. SOC staff are very difficult to keep a hold of um, because there's huge demand for them. And also it's a very stressful role. So the, the SOC staff themselves <laughs> also want to, after a few years, get yeah. into something less stressful. I've been a SOC <laughs> manager for three years. And again, that was uh, a case of, yes, that was good to do. It was great to build up a huge SOC, but thank you. <laughs> and then you're like, uh, I'm out. I'm doing something else now. Yes. Right. I want well, something I where the phone doesn't ring too much in the night. I can 100% understand that. I've got a fair few friends that are working in that space. 
I know you've had quite the journey in the compliance area within the banking sector. So I'm really keen to understand your perspective. What do you believe banks need to pay more attention to when it comes to compliance? And what is your approach to optimizing this? Yeah, compliance is one of my favorite subjects because if you do it well, you actually mitigate a lot of risk within the organization. Um, I've always been a big proponent of actually having bringing not just your traditional checkbox compliance reviews, but doing a more holistic form of compliance assessments that turn into mini security assessments for every subject area. Traditionally, you know, compliance is always done. No, we're doing this compliance of this system or we're doing compliance of this application. But once you actually look at the compliance for a whole subject area of systems or a whole business process, then that becomes a very strong review where it looks end to end at the controls, for example, rather than looking at, oh, how's our data leakage system put together or how's our intrusion prevention system put together? Look at the whole process of, I want to do a compliance review on leakage and all the different points within the organization where that could be an issue. In terms of having that overview, automating as much of that as possible to give the analyst more time because everyone is always short of resources and compliance. It's an, it's an area where there's the biggest resource uh, demand right now, and it's the area that has the biggest uh, gap in terms of uh, having the appropriate resources needed, especially as in the Middle East, uh, we tend to buy every single system on the planet. So therefore, the compliance requirements from an assessment standpoint tend to be huge within all the different organizations I've been in. Because when you start to have 2000 uh, servers as your baseline with uh, 150 core applications, your compliance requirements on that become a nightmare. So you need to actually have a constant process of compliance reviews taking place so that over a cycle of two years, you cover all your applications and all your subject areas that are of concern. As part of these compliance reviews, they should be doing red team exercises, risk assessment, looking at the threats that are hitting it, identifying if there's any CTI relevant to those compliance things, not just the traditional, okay, this system is in scope for PCI, what's the checklist for this? Or this system is in scope for SWIFT uh, CSP, what's the control requirements for this? And looking at it more as a comprehensive security assessment of that area. You spoke about the holistic compliance review in that approach. Do you believe a lot of, in your experience, people are actually doing that or they're just sort of following the bouncing ball of the traditional compliance route? In the GCC, it tends to be more the traditional approach, although, again, in some of the organisations I've been in, I'm heavily pushing to get it more <laughs> towards this uh, this approach of uh, holistic review. and. Mm -hmm. Again, once once you start doing that, I, I know that in the UAE, for example, a lot of banks follow this approach. Um, the UAE, again, has uh, had uh, regulations in place and has is a bit more mature, I would say, in terms of uh, mm -hmm. the, the security governance and compliance structures. Same in Saudi Arabia, because Saudi has done a huge amount of investment in information security over the last 10 years, uh, massive from a country level and from a financial sector level. So again, mm -hmm. the the maturity levels in those marketplaces are coming up quite quickly. So that that approach is being adopted, and uh, again, banks in Bahrain are now doing it as well. The regulator is starting to issue more and more 
regulations around cybersecurity, because again, they're trying to encourage fintechs to come here and they're trying to encourage the banks to embrace these fintechs. So they realize that they have, this has to be done in a safe and secure manner because the last thing the sector needs is any form of concern around cybersecurity. I like the point where you mentioned about driving the innovation, but still taking security into consideration. What I'd like to move into now, considering you've had quite a, a large history in the banking sector, but also from a leadership point of view, you did speak earlier in the podcast about this. So I've got a bit of an idea, but I'd still like to understand how C-suite executives view security in your region. Do they understand that security is an investment rather than a cost? And from your understanding, how does this compare to other parts of the world? Um, in the region, uh, again, C-suite and board member executives are very concerned about it. They they understand it's a risk. They might not actually understand the subject area, and mm-hmm. it's uh, it's again one of the areas where you know boards are now just starting to get that kind of awareness in place for security, um, whereas previously they maybe didn't have that level of awareness and that level of education being brought into the boards by the CISOs. CISO Mm -hmm. is generally not that much used title in the DCC. It still follows the information security head and the IT security head. There's still not that approach of having a C-suite executive uh, handling cybersecurity. it's only the more advanced banks that are actually moving towards this approach right now. So again, sometimes boards are still not educated as much as they need to be. And that's that's happening now. That's that's taken off in the last four or five years, especially, where the boards are now becoming aware of cyber, they're they're concerned about it, and they're actually becoming educated about it. Um, and I've had some really good conversations with board members where they're discussing attacks or targeting other parts of the world um, and how they then relate to the banks here. So, again, it, it tends to lag behind um, other parts of the world, but is catching up very rapidly mm-hmm. due to regulation. The regulations being brought in in the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait's just introducing a whole bunch of cybersecurity regulations. These are then driving the management um, agenda for cyber and information security. And they are then becoming much more aware of cybersecurity as a result, because it's mandated under regulation that they are briefed, that they are trained, that they have to have a deck prepared for them talking about cyber risk. It can no longer be a report that's buried on the board agenda. It actually has to be a mandatory session in, I believe, in Saudi Arabia's regulation. Bahrain itself is also introducing regulations such as this. They've done so for investment banks and there's new regulations coming out all the time. So it's more and more catching up with Mm -hmm. the the modern concept of uh, executive cybersecurity management. And you're now seeing lots of more CISO titles being introduced into uh, mostly the financial sector. Um, But there are oil and gases coming behind. Uh, I've seen a couple of CISOs in oil and gas sector Mm -hmm. as well. Um, So you're seeing that maturing of the, the management side of information and cybersecurity, whereas previously that wasn't there. One thing that was interesting to me that you said they're very concerned about it, because when I speak to other people in Australia, US, they're not as concerned because they see it as a, as a sunk cost, unfortunately. 
Do you think if there was more regulation rolled out to other parts of the world that perhaps it'd propel board members to think a little bit more closely at this topic? I used to write board reports uh, for a company that I was working at and it wasn't a mandatory thing, but the awareness was lacking and we did that through Mm. education. People know that there's regulations around it. Do you think that that'll get them to move a little quicker? Um, yes, regulation is always the, the stick that we, we love to hate in the security industry. It, it gets yes. us our funding and our resources. Uh, but yes, that it does help. That approach of bringing in regulation also makes management much more aware on how they are accountable for cybersecurity. And I, I've seen some very good examples actually of it in uh, Saudi Arabia where the regulator brought in huge amounts of regulation and then started to do compliance reviews on the local banks to the new cybersecurity regulations. They they adopted mostly NIST. Um, mm-hmm. And if you know NIST, it's very mm-hmm. comprehensive. They mm-hmm. put in huge control requirements, huge governance requirements, and that has massively brought the sector up uh, in the cyber uh, global cyber index. So you look at how regulation has massively improved the banking sector here, again, it would do the same elsewhere because they know that they have to do it. uh, They have to invest in it and that have to take it seriously. The challenge being that maybe they're not as attacked as the Middle East. And I don't know if Cisco has a very famous report from, I think it was last year or the year before, and it was just the GCC was a red blob on the, their attack landscape showing Whoa. how many attacks you know and it was a ve- it was a very good uh, infographic I, I borrowed that for a, a board presentation and it literally made the board sit up because they wow. looked at that world map showing all the different regions and who uh, you know the levels of attacks and the sophistication of the attacks and the GCC especially Saudi Arabia actually was the most attacked out of all the countries and even in the GCC had a huge amount of sophisticated, targeted attacks. And that's why you now find over the last few years that the investment in advanced technologies is now racing in the GCC. Things you would have normally seen only outside are now starting to come in. People are now talking about behavior analytics. People are now talking about advanced SOC. People are now talking about cyber threat intel, whereas previously these subjects were generally not talked about and Mm -hmm. the roles were not available. And again, one of the ways you monitor this kind of uh, maturing is actually what roles you're seeing advertised in the market. If you see advertised roles, if it's just the generic information security person who seems to do everything and they they list everything from firewall management right the way through to governance, compliance and policies, then you know the maturity of the organization is less. But once you start seeing job descriptions being issued for recruitment that are very focused and very tight on, we need a cyber threat intel person, need to be experienced in using threat feeds, generating intel, collaborating, working with FSISAC, these sorts of things then you know the 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 market is maturing in terms of Mm -hmm. actually having the these level of granularity of the roles because in all honesty the roles have expanded massively as well over the last 10 years Mm -hmm. one of the things just going back on the regulation i'd like to hopefully see that this regulation being rolled out to other sectors because Yes, there was government bodies that we had to report to and to make sure we had a level of compliance. But I think where other organisations are missing out on is because they 
don't have a government body in there. So they're sort of just going, oh, that's a lot of money. It's a sunken cost. Mm. So what would be just your opinion to get people to understand that it's not a cost and it's really an investment, even if they don't have any regulation that's propelling them to, to do something about it and take action? Yeah, the... This is, again, where you start to have more mature security leaders that actually talk about return on investment. Mm -hmm. That if you start talking to CFOs and you talk to them about attacks and cost of attacks and things like that, (laughs) they don't understand this. But if you actually talk to them about return on investment, and there are actually matrices you can use to take a risk assessment that's actually derived from something highly technical and then map that right the way through to a figure and a number. And you can then show an ROI calculation to your CFO or your CRO or within the organization or your CEO, depending on the size and if you have the, the, the roles in place and say to them, look, this is loss avoidance. This is not a cost. This is loss avoidance. It's an investment to avoid loss. And they understand that. They, that that brings through an understanding that previously, when you talk about we're going to have downtime, we're going to have cyber attacks, we need to fix that. Oh, C-level management, oh, that's a technical thing. We'll, we'll figure that out. But once you actually start saying this is loss avoidance, you, it becomes a board-level issue. Because, mm-hmm. again, you've highlighted it in a manner that the board understands. And taking a risk assessment and then translating it into loss avoidance calculation gives the management that visibility and understanding that they don't. Because again, information cybersecurity professionals, we're we're so involved in our technology, our industry, uh, Mm -hmm. we quite often forget that other people actually do not have a clue what we talk (laughs) about. And concepts that we think are extremely basic are still unknown for people that are Mm -hmm. in, for example, credit risk or finance or um, business areas. They just don't understand it. So Mm -hmm. again, and that's something we need to get better at in terms of communicating in language that they will understand because our industry is very fast moving. We get new concepts daily. So we're used to learning about today's new thing is this, tomorrow's new thing is that. Whereas these other industries, they, their their concepts and their terminology hasn't changed in 40, 50 years. So, um, Especially you know, a CFO, yeah. a numbers guy, not really. Yeah, and the, you know, the concepts in finance, yes, there's new regulations that have uh, built things, but they don't understand concepts of threat intelligence. You know, they're like, what is this? Why does it cost so much? And what... <laughs> Why do I need to throw people at it? You know, but if you you tell them that this is us actually going into an approach where we can avoid loss, and we can show you a calculation that's amortized over five years, and they can build that cost out, and here's how it's going to affect the bottom line and the profits. They're like, oh, we do that with loans, and we do that with uh, other areas of finance. We we understand this. Okay, this is good. Good. I, I like that, and I agree with you 100% communicating the language that people understand. And I think we are still trying to mature as an industry. And I can see that gap closing slowly, but surely. What I'd like to move into next and lastly is I'd like to ask you a few questions about can you provide some insights as to how you lead your internal security team? Mm. Yes, um, I 
I like to, with my teams, learn the, learn the people first. You learn what people's core competencies are, their core skills, and then let them do what they enjoy because we're always understaffed. In, you know, in cybersecurity, information security, it's always an area of pressure. It's always an area of constant staff, either turnover or lack of staff. And there's always too much to be done. So if you don't enjoy what you do, then you're mm -hmm. not going to get deliverables out of the staff. So my approach is always to give people what they like and try and make it that they enjoy being in the office. They enjoy being in their team. They enjoy the work that they do. Because when they see that enthusiasm, because frankly, what we do is great fun. We get to play with everything from highly sophisticated technology to risk to attacks and it's fun. And once you actually bring that back to the team and you, and I like to take the pressure off my internal teams and take the politics out of it so they can focus on delivery. And, mm -hmm. you know, I will deal with the management level, negotiations, politics, and, you know, the, the inevitable heat that will come for delivery. Because mm -hmm. if they're focused 100% on delivery, then they're happy they're enjoying what they're doing. They're getting to work with uh, cool products, new technology. They're getting to work through and identify issues and systems. You know, that these sorts of activities, the, t the staff actually enjoy doing that. Even SOC can be enjoyable if you make it that you have prizes of the week for who finds the biggest issue. You know, who has the, who identifies the biggest uh, advanced threat that's hitting us? Who's found some threat intel that's actually really relevant? These mm -hmm. sorts of things. And you just make it more fun for them because we're not a nine to three job or a nine to four job. We're, we're usually there long hours. Our phones do ring all the time. There's not areas in the organization where we can kind of uh, turn off when we go on vacation. There's always that in the back of the mind that you have to be ready just in case there's an incident. And it's generally when holidays happen, they all attackers actually do target, especially in the Middle East holiday periods. They wait yeah. until it's the holiday time. And after everyone's uh, Friday evening, Saturday evening, bang, the attacks hit once everyone's gone on holiday. So it becomes actually a, a, a big challenge. So the only way that you get that is that you have your team loyal to each other and mm -hmm. you have them enjoying what they do. Because once you have that team and that strong internal team built, then working the extra time isn't so much of a chore. It becomes, it's your team and it becomes, we take ownership of the security of the organization rather than that it's a job and what do I have to do. Wow, I love that, I think that's awesome. I think that I haven't seen a lot of that personally speaking, so, I think that I like your approach on getting everyone involved. That it's it's like a mission together. It's not just that team or that team's lagging behind. It's we're all in this together, and it's hard and it's tough and it's stressful and and we have all this stuff going on all the time. But yes, I do agree with you that you have to really love what you do uh, to, especially in this industry, to want to do this all the time. Because I don't think you're really going to give it your best if you're not doing that. You, you can burn out very quickly and and especially if you're not doing what you enjoy and if you see a team member who's not doing what they enjoy we have so many varied roles within cyber and information security you can always give them the role that they need to be doing and just explain to them look you have to do this for just now but 
over here we have this really cool thing which I think you'll enjoy but if you do this for just now you can then transition to that role and let's get through this. Um, I agree. I've, I've been in that situation before, so I have had a few different roles in the same organization. But what I'd like to close with is what is your approach to managing third parties and vendors to ensure they are compliant, but also operating at the same cadence as your current internal security team? Yes, um, third party risk is now becoming one of the biggest concerns and it's where uh, I think I read a report recently it's like 25-30% of breaches come via your trusted third parties so again uh, in the Middle East actually this is an area that's been actually in the past very uh, well controlled uh, much more so actually I would say than uh, other parts of the world because the Middle East was very uh, untrusting of third-party connections and third-party suppliers. So there was always very good controls put around these uh, these areas. Uh, third-party regulation has actually been a cornerstone of most central bank. Uh, yeah, pretty much every central bank in the Middle East that I know has had third-party regulations on outsourcing and managing risk of third parties for a long time. So keeping the third parties compliant is actually um, embedded into a lot of the security teams where, again, you do compliance reviews, you do compliance checks, but nowadays that's also not becoming enough. There's um, a, a new report that uh, I saw the other week where if you're not actually actively treating your third parties like owned assets, then you're actually uh, letting your organization down from a security perspective. Mm -hmm. So you should be scanning them. You should be having regular compliance reviews. You should be actually auditing their access just like uh, everyone else. You should be actually mandating more controls in certain areas on the third parties. Because again, staffing risks at third parties, you don't have the ability to monitor uh, staff engagement, uh, you know, disgruntled staff, uh, disgruntled administrators, etc. So it becomes actually, in some cases, a, a lot more. And handling that now means that you need to actually dedicate more people just to handle third-party risk and mm -hmm. to start questioning the third parties and saying, well, what? yes, you've said you've had this control, but what exactly are you doing? And actually starting to mandate controls to the third parties, um, saying to them, well, you have this and you've had that and you said, yes, you're certified to this, but do you actually have these controls in place? Because a lot of third parties nowadays rely on certifications or they rely on industry bodies saying, well, we're already connected to so-and-so and we're already connected yeah. to so-and-so and they didn't have any problems. Um, but again, if you start to go back to them and say, well, I don't care, I want to know, do you have this control in place? This is the risk that you have. And again, taking them through the risk assessment process, just like you would any other system and applying that risk assessment and threat model to them and saying, well, our threats from you are X, Y, and Z, and this is the threats that we see. Have you got these controls in place to mitigate the risks? You can take that whole process, the same for the internal compliance for the third parties. How do you think they feel about that? Because I know from my experience working with a third party, we told them that we wanted to pen test and they sort of pushed back and were like, no, we'll conduct it ourselves. But it kind of defeated the purpose because then mm. it doesn't really help what we're trying to achieve. How do, how do you sort yeah. of manage uh, third parties behaving in a manner like that? Is it sort of written into the terms and conditions uh, originally? Yeah. 
this is this is uh, where you uh, again, and this is the the regulation here has helped in this is that okay, you know, it's written into contracts and regulations. They must comply with the, the requirements of the bank, and that's generally where I've been pretty much for the last 15 years. Every bank has had this written in stone in the bank's terms and conditions that the bank uh, or the financial institution has the right to do whatever they want, the right to audit, the right to inspect, the right to scan. Mm-hmm. And actually, I've seen that a lot of organizations welcome it, but uh, you're right. I've had a couple of partners that are like, well, we're connected to everyone else. Why are you being so dogmatic and insisting that we <laughs> do put in place these requirements? And what, you want to scan us? You want to uh, actively uh, probe our systems? No, you can't do that. And so, But um, then it's a case of, well, this is the contract. You want to deal with us? You have to... <laughs> You have to comply. So, yes, exactly. And uh, there's services nowadays coming out uh, that are actually offering metrics on third parties, and they're they're quite interesting to do in your own organisation. They're FICO and Marsh. They all have uh, services right now where you can go and look at your own inverted commas security score, just like you would a credit rating. And wow. uh, some of these services actually, they they take not just into account what your current posture is as of today. From what I've looked on these, they're based on a combination of scanning, IP history, history of breaches, reputation of those IPs, and uh, not just the vulnerabilities that are present on those third parties. So they give an idea of how mature the organization security is based upon what services are exposed. So it gives you, again, another idea of how secure these third parties are and these services are not that expensive and you can use them for all your third party risk i wouldn't mm-hmm. use it as the the core concept of it but as part of a blended compliance risk assessment and it can add value in by saying well and their security score is x right i got you that's a that's a really good way of looking at it as well because you get two perspectives mm. So, Ross, I have really enjoyed this interview. You are probably one of the first people I've interviewed on this podcast from the Middle East. So I have personally learned a lot from you, and I think our listeners will as well. If people were to want to reach out to you, where can they find you? Well, I'm usually very active on LinkedIn. I'm not so active on Twitter. I, I, I like to use Twitter as an information feed rather than get actively involved in the in the debates there. But sure, sure, uh, sure. I'm yes. usually very active on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, Ross, I really, really have loved uh, today's conversation. I think I learned a lot and I really appreciated you taking the time on your weekend to talk with me. No problem at all. It's been great having this chat. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.